We're still giving away two boxes of books per episode, one to a Patreon supporter and one to a PayPal supporter. Slightly bigger box of books for the Patreon supporter. So if you listen to the end of this episode, you will find out who the two winners are. Because if you come from a negative politeness culture like um, London on the tube you don't ask people questions about themselves there because we're all very jealous of our personal space likewise in Japan you don't ask personal questions so it depends where you come from if you come from the middle of the plains of Spain or or in the middle of America you always ask people questions about themselves so it is sort of culturally determined whether that is rude or not yeah and now the introduction to the show after that conversation which is unusable um, it's not unusable. Well, we can kind of start the it there, but it's going to be a little something. bit weird. But anyway, <laughs> hello. Welcome to Josie and Robin's Book Shambles. Uh, Josie will be telling us more about her island adventures that you might have <laughs> had a little snippet at the beginning. And uh, Philippa Perry will be uh, explaining what they mean from both an anthropological and uh, psychotherapeutic way. Or I'll otherwise. certainly be explaining it from my way, if I'm so inclined. But I wouldn't like to, you know, gain ownership of them ologies and that. I like when you mentioned that I, I was listening to Museum of Curiosity the other day and Kate Fox was on who wrote that book Watching the English. Oh, I love that book. And she was talking about the difficulty where she wants to find out about the, the way that English people, uh, if someone bumps into them, they say sorry. Yeah, it's and one of my favourite things about our culture. Well, no, but J.G. <laughs> Ballard kind of says that that's one of the reasons that we're all so horrible and wretched and furious underneath it all and have all oh. this suppressed stuff that makes us shit is because you go, oh, I'm so sorry, and then go, stupid fucking idiot, under your breath afterwards. <laughs> and though he said it far more eloquently and in a much longer form, set in a tower block probably. And uh, she said that she was looking for cultures she said England was definitely the main one where that happened she said Japan is quite close to having a similar attitude she said but it's much harder to bump into people because she was deliberately bumping into people so but it actually turns out that the Japanese it's it's been uh, catalogued are some of the most adept pedestrians so it's very hard to bump into them because they're constantly conscious of where other people are and so you go to bump into them they've moved already they've avoided the collision so she had to spend a long period of time did, desperately trying to bump into Did they apologise, though, when she did bump into Yeah, them? yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, great. But she said it just took a lot longer to get the information than she'd <laughs> hoped. Um, the first question I wanted to ask you before we get into your books and, and the other books that you like is, I can't remember, you do you still work as a, a, a therapist, um, actually, with um, people coming to visit you, or have you stopped that now? What I do to keep my hand in is I work for a an organisation called Talk for Health, and what we do is that we train people to have therapeutic conversations with each other. So we've got a training group for four days, and we give them the basic tools of co-counselling in a group, if you like, and then they're off on their own on a group with minimal help. So that's called Talk for Health, and I work for them. Now, you wrote a book about... Uh, it's, it's a comic book. It's called Couch Fiction. And that was you trying to... It's one of your books, but it was you, you explaining the process of what it's like to both be a, a, a counselled and counselled. Is that, is that fair enough? Yeah, I was uh, reading Harvey Pika's American Splendour and I just thought, oh my God, this is brilliant. Because it shows you everything at once so you can sort of experience things like you experience them in life. Whereas if you write a long case study out, it might demonstrate how therapy works or is experienced, but you can't sort of get it in an instant at once like you can with a with a picture plus thought bubbles, plus speech bubbles, plus both people at the same time. And I just thought, wow, I want to do it. So I did. And was that... Sorry, Josie, you were going to... No, I was just enjoying... I was just enjoying looking at the book and the style of it. And um, so it's not very good radio because I'm just saying what I'm doing, but... Um, we're going to add that sound effect that we talked about <laughs> in another episode, which is to show that I'm not actually talking but over you, that you're thinking... I'm thinking and, and listening. Because <laughs> um, uh, what do you think is the most commonly... Uh, by the way, I love Harvey Pico's America Spender, I think is an incredible yeah. film as well. And you can see the, you can see the relation of... The styles, I think, in it, definitely. But what was it, when you were writing it, was it because you were also thinking there are a lot of presumptions that people make about what you do? Uh, perhaps also that there are people who think that they wouldn't, that, you know, therapy wouldn't be the right thing for them. Was that part of the reason behind the book, or just want to write a book? Um, it's much less high-minded than, than that, although that might have come in. Um, what I do, or what I did then, I do 
behind closed doors. And I thought I was brilliant at it. So I thought, wouldn't it be great if I could, you know, show off what I do? Because uh, an old narcissistic injury was flaring up again because my husband gets so much attention. And I just thought, oh, I want some attention. It's not <laughs> fair. And a sort of, sort of, you might call that sibling rivalry transference type thing also rearing its head. So I thought, I'll show you what I do all day. And then in order to write the book properly, I had to really show what I did all day. And in order to do that, I had to really observe myself and how I work. And actually, I'm not as brilliant as I thought I was. <laughs> it's actually a constant sort of making mistakes and then making amends. It's uh, what they call in the trade a rupture and repair, which sounds a bit medical, but it's not. So basically, we, we try and attune to each other, but we invariably go off course. And that's what I managed to show in the book. But of course, I had to humiliate myself to show how often I do actually go off course. So what is a good example of going off course when you're, when you're, you're with someone, when you're, you're talking with them uh, as a therapist? What would, what would be one of the first mistakes you think, ah, I learned a lot from... I think uh, in in couch fiction that the mistake she makes is a mistake I often make, which is understanding everything a little bit too fast and think you've got it when you haven't. Because there is similarity, say, between three or four narcissistic people that come in. You think, oh, I know, narcissists do this, that and the other or whatever. And you might make an assumption about someone which is actually not true. Or you might think they are quicker than they are because they're a barrister or something like that. So you think, oh, you must be really, really clever if you passed all those exams and you practice at the bar. But actually, when it comes to emotional intelligence, they might be really, really unformed. So you, I, so making assumptions, I suppose, is how you cause a rupture to happen. Did, uh, did you read, is it um, The Examined Life, Michael Gross, is it? Stephen Gross? Oh, that's Stephen Gross. That's a lovely, lovely book of case studies. I've very much enjoyed it. What I found, it was more like a sort of detective novel, which is like if I can if I can crack the reason why someone is like they are, if we can make a link between how they experience themselves now and the past, then that seemed to be the end of each case study. And what was missing for me in that book is like, yeah, a lot of people get why they are like they are, but that's only... A small amount of the story. They, you know, they might think, oh, "I know why I self-loathe because my mother loathed me," but you can't just stop the habit just because you've got a bit mm. of insight. Mm. And those books seem to stop at the insight, you know, which is interesting. That's the interesting part of the the, the therapy. But uh, therapy is a lot more than that, and it's a lot of just being with someone, so that you get to experience someone experiencing you as okay. So then you experience yourself as okay. And that can be a very long um, operation. You know, it can go on for years because we don't make new neural connections in a, in a, in a second. Or if we do, yeah, we do make them in a second. Actually, I'm not a neuroscientist. <laughs> but if we do, we still need practice to form a, a, a habitual pathway. So that's why you can't just go, aha, and then be cured. Yeah. It, it, the aha is there, but then you have to practice thinking, I might be all right then. Yeah. And you have to experience yourself as all right then in relationship with another person. Yeah. I, I, sorry, I, I went to therapy for five and a half years and it did completely change my life. And it is that thing of like reinforcing a different way of thinking and reinforcing different ways of trying to relate to people and stuff like that and uh, yeah it's, it's great but it is the being with almost more than the uh it's it's because you were left to cry as a baby realization yeah, yeah it's having like when i first went to therapy i got very frustrated because she wouldn't give me homework and i felt like there wasn't an achievement based thing i could because i was sort of under the impression that i would go there i would do the work quickly and it would be sorted all my <laughs> troubles and that I and that it would be something that I could very kind of intellectually sort out and tick off and stuff and then the fact that so much of it was just actually like having a space to kind of let yourself feel emotions let yourself kind of trust the process in a in a manner that to me was like patience beyond my wildest 
dreams of what I would ever yeah. want to because I'm like quite an impatient person as yeah well. yeah you um, have to sort of change and to change your speed and slow down and unpack things that are you know really really small and get everything out and yeah which it, I like um, loads of the time I'd just be like oh this takes too long and it's too painful it is painful I like it yeah um when I'm working with someone um, I like to, from time to time, review the work we've done. You know, what interventions work for you? What isn't working for you? What did you like? What did you not like? Just so I can make less mistakes and stay on course. So I like a little bit of, re- of a review. And invariably, they wouldn't say things like, it was the time you made that brilliant, uh, in, you know, um, realization that um i treat all men like my father or something like that which i thought was rather clever (laughs) no it wasn't that it would be like it was that time i saw you welled up a bit when i was telling you my story oh yeah or it was oh the time you just touched my arm when i left the way out i felt so cared for and i just thought seven years of bloody training for arm touching you know it's a bit kind of like oh but then that is the point it is um, and um, you are giving them some emotional space to be themselves and to accept them in that space. And that is it. So it isn't being clever. That Stephen Grossbrook was brilliant in Examined Life, was it? Yeah, The Examined Life. The exam- it was a brilliant, lovely book and, and it was full of love and I really enjoyed it. But it didn't show the arm-touching side of it. It didn't show, you know, how people feel when they actually experience themselves as being accepted. There is one story in it which has a great, incredible twist. Don't you remember? Oh, yes. One particular person. Yes, it was sort of like he was always talking about this house in France and you get all the way to the end and the house in France is a metaphor. Yeah. It never really existed. That's quite beautiful. Oh, yeah. there, there, there's a couple of, no, you have to read it. It's, ah. quite a short book. It's, a, it's, a, it's actually a very nice book to just go, oh, I'm going to read a, a little, one of his little case studies now and you don't have to yeah. read it all in, in one fell swoop. I was interested, when we did a documentary about comedians and mental health a couple of years ago, um, you taught, we won't bring up the name, and I think it was actually off microphone, but it was quite interesting, about going to see a comedian where you had to leave because you went, I know that they've got problems that they think they're talking about on stage and dealing with them by making this show, but actually I can see that the struggle is far from over. Oh, I so want to know who that was, and I know that's bad. But... um, but that do you find yourself, are there certain things, you know, perhaps pieces of art or even maybe conversations that you're sometimes having with people in social occasions where you think you don't know them very well, you're just having a chat and you think, oh, I'm going to have to terminate this conversation because there's things that I'm seeing in them and yeah. I, I just can't deal with it. I, I mean, is that part of the... Well, the, there's that. Sometimes I'm sitting next to someone on the bus and I can sense them to be so depressed that I'm, I'm picking it up and I'm catching it. Because after sitting in a room with someone and using your whole body as a sort of receptor, you get used to sort of, you know, being open to what other people are feeling and almost experiencing it in your own body as well. I don't want to sound too crystals and and dream catchery, but that you do over a few decades pick that skill up. And so if I'm sitting next to someone on the bus, sometimes, you know, I can feel hate coming off them. I think, I'm going to move. You might have had that ex- that experience yourselves when it's really pronounced, but I think I pick it up when it's quite subtle as well. Cool. And uh, the thing I have to say, I have to stop you there because you're actually undressing in front of me, is when people tell me their dreams. Like, oh, I had this dream last night. And they say it in a jokey voice. And I think, oh, God, we really have got some issues, haven't we? And I feel like... I can't match their jokiness because it's it's hitting me in a sort of deeper place. Oh no! In, in the yesterday when we were recording a podcast, I was talking about one of my dreams. Yeah, really weird, to it. Really, really weird. It wasn't yeah. weird. It was really that strange. I, it was I had to commentate on a Reading football match, but I don't really know anything about football, so I was just making it up. Oh, that's your classic imposter sy- yeah. syndrome. Okay. Like, like we all have that. That's fine. Of... I can deal with that. <laughs> Um, I think uh, I was, um... mine was um, so <laughs> Brian Cox and I were going to be doing a gig in Manchester and then Peter Kay came along and I said don't get Peter Kay on he's going to try and take over the whole gig and one of my shoes was falling apart and anyway Peter Kay came on and he made us all sing We Are The World which wasn't <laughs> what the audience wanted at all they wanted a lecture about physics yeah you're frightened of being hijacked 
Yeah. Which is quite interesting because sometimes I experience you as hijacking a conversation in an entertaining, fun way. I don't mean stop it, but it's funny that you have projected something that you may do onto another part of yourself, which is your Peter Kay part. Mm. You, it wasn't really Peter Kay, it was your inner Peter Kay. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah. I don't want to talk. And now I want to go to Amarillo. The whole thing's a disaster. You do you want see, to go to Amarillo. You really do. That, that thing you're talking about there is, I think, it's the uh, the gag reflex, which is uh, something that comedians fight against all the time, and then it comes out. You know, mm. I mean, we do it on this and 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 in in other life as well, which is you go, oh no, I thought of a joke. Um, we should just keep talking, but I want to say the joke. No, I mustn't. And some, and you get. I think with age, you get better at it. Because yeah. of the first few times, you just think that has has really spoiled what was someone else's death in a hospital. <laughs> you know, that's kind of like. You, uh, and, I know. I'd, I'd love to have you joking around my deathbed. That'd be fun. I'd like the mind taking off stuff. Then I think, possibly. Do you ever feel like? <laughs> Let me just give you one final piece of advice. Well, let's give me an idea for a. Oh, oh dear, I mistimed that. They've gone. <laughs> what was it going to be? Defibrillators for advice. <laughs> He's back, he's back, which reminds me. <laughs> um, no, I was going to say, it, I mean, it's. I hate to always relate everything to stand-up a little bit, but I think with, with stand-up, do you feel like over, over time you feel like you can read rooms? But then, but then sometimes for me that makes me feel too, like, too sure of my, like, ability to read a room. And do you ever feel like you've got, like... Superpowers, <laughs> like no, I never feel I've got superpowers, and I'm pretty sure I haven't got superpowers. And anything that I do, I sort of read the person sitting next to me on the bus. Is is anyone could do it if they'd had as much practice at it as me? It's not superpowers, and just like you can actually read a room, you're you pick it up intuitively. You know the murmurations that are yeah. going on and how people are sitting or standing, whether they're moving, whether they're still. You can pick up that sort of stuff, and you might not be able to sort of write a key, but you feel it in your body, and you might just hold that lightly, thinking, "I wonder if I'm right about this." And you, and if you respond to it, that's actually you being sensitive to the room and having a relationship with the room, and it's probably a good thing. Yeah, I, do you know what's funny is I think. I think knowing what you do, it gives. It, I think it must make people very like behave strangely, not strangely around you, but behave kind of warily around you, or behave like full on around you. Sometimes people go, "Oh, can you analyse me then?" And I feel totally inadequate because I think, "No, not really. We've spoken for three minutes, and you know, I've just seen your social self. I've no idea of your inner life. You know, of course yeah. I can't." Um, and sometimes people ask you what you do, and you just sort of say, "I'm a psychotherapist." And I've had the experience where people have looked at me shocked and then walked off silently as if I said, I'm a mass murderer. So I can only think that they have been mass murdered at some point by a shrink and have tarred us all with the same brush. Or they're a Scientologist. Or maybe. Who knows? Let's have a fantasy. I've no idea. Well, there is. I mean, that that's a, I've, I've been interested with friends of mine who've trained to be psychotherapists. And, you know, when you go into psychotherapy, obviously, to train... And some of the experiences I've heard they've had with therapy, it does seem like it's, there's a wild, you know, quite a wild selection of possibilities of how you might be treated by um, different people and the attitude that they bring with them uh, yeah. when, when uh, you... It, it, it's like you can't just go to a psychotherapist like you can go to a brand of shampoo and know what to expect. Um, because it's 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 a bit like choosing... A doctor and a lover all in one. You know how hard it is, you know, to choose a boyfriend or a girlfriend. That's really difficult, you know, and how many stumbling blocks there are there. Well, although you're not going to have a romantic relationship if all goes well with your therapist, it's still such an intimate relationship that if someone is never, ever going to get you because of their particular blind spot, not all the training in Timbuktu is ever going to train them to be able to get you. And you just might be stuck for years. I think it's really hard to find a good psychotherapist. And I don't mean there's good ones and there's bad ones, although, of course, there are. I mean, there's a good one for you and a bad one for you, because what is a brilliant um, analyst or psychotherapist for one person is a poor therapist for another 
Like I loved my analyst. I thought he was brilliant. He really got me. We we almost had a private language. He was like so good at getting stuff. So I sent acquaintances to him. So oh, I couldn't bear him. I had to leave after you know three sessions. I just thought oh, so you know one size does not does not fit all at all. I want I want to ask you about books that you love and books that you've read. But I also think like, is there anything you could give? advice-wise to people who maybe think they would like to start therapy as to how they could find someone who was right for them? Yes, I could, which is use what's left of your instincts. I mean, you probably need therapy because people have tried to reason away your own instincts and you've got a bit lost. But what you've got left of those instincts, use them. Interview uh, therapists. Contact about three Go and see about three and have just just contract for one session. Some people give free sessions to start with if they're trying to establish their practice or, a, you know, a sort of exploratory chat for like quarter of an hour. Go and just see how you feel. See if you want to open up to that person or whether you think, no, no, I can't. And then the one you like best, go to. I mean, you don't buy the first pair of shoes you try on, do you? So... Try on a few pairs and, and see which feel comfortable. I do. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, I'm I do I'm very much a two-pair person. I'm very lazy. I get one pair and then I get the same pair again because once that pair's worn out. Yeah, it's, I'm so lazy and old. Um, the, was there anything you read, I mean, in terms of your eventually becoming a psychotherapist, was that from anything, you, you, what experience was it? that made you go, this could be where I want to go. I think um, it was uh, M. Scott Peck and The Road Less Travelled, which, of course, I could pick so many holes in now. Um, But at the time, I just thought, oh, I'd love someone to understand me, how he seems to understand his patients, how great. Because I felt at the time I read that, that I had never been got so I just thought, oh, that would be lovely if somebody understood me like that, how he seems to. And it's it's very entertaining and, uh, you know, a bit of a page turner. So, yeah, so that was a very significant uh, first read for me. And there must have been other early books as well. Irving Yalom, Love's Executioner. These are case studies, not unlike um, Stephen Gross ones, actually, the uh, Love's Executioner one. He's really interesting. I just started reading his Staring at the Sun. Oh, right, yeah. All about death. And his work. Well, he's nearly dead. Uh, (laughs) um, Which is why he's written Staring at the Sun about (laughs) death. Exactly. He says that now his patients' dreams are things like coming across his Panama hat, looking at it and seeing it's full of cobwebs, which he interprets as his head hasn't been in that hat for a while i.e. he's going to die. He is an existentialist, which means that he's very keen on the four givens, which is uh, you will die. Harsh starter. You will die. I mean, (laughs) every day evidence has suggested the contrary. For me, for me. You're, you're yet, young. We have no days of you being dead. <laughs> exactly. So definitely, if we just look and at the evidence, you've been a lot more alive over the last yeah. um, thirty-nine Th- years. Than Thirty-four you've been dead. years. <laughs> I hope so. this is going to be a great comfort to you. <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, you are die. alone. I mean, it's not getting better, is it? <laughs> you are alone. Um, I hope the third one is. You'll have a lovely dinner. Life <laughs> is meaningless. <laughs> I mean, come on, it is. It's just the meanings we make of it. Mm-hmm. And what's the fourth? I can't remember. Music is good. I can't remember <laughs> what the fourth is. Maybe that your mind will go one day because oh. mine certainly has because I can't remember the fourth existential given. Don't worry, but no, no doubt somebody in the other room is Googling it right now. <laughs> <laughs> See, I think that's it. Now, does that come... Because I think they are... Those are I think, I think they, they are quite comforting once you just go, that's it. Yeah, once you accept, I mean, he starts uh, The Road Less Travelled, which I haven't cribbed for this or read for 20 years or so, but I can remember that it starts, life is complicated. Once you accept that, it's a lot easier, which is, again, you know, an existential stance. Mm. Anyway, he was a very entertaining writer, but he was also, unbeknown to me when I was first struck by how wonderful he was, a terrific womaniser. Used to screw around a lot. 
That's so depressing, isn't it? Because I, no I one's the... perfect, love. I know, but once that's I... probably the fourth given. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's the some like it hot rule of existentialism, isn't it? No, but I genuinely do find it a sad shame as a woman when I find out that someone I love the work of their behaviour is like, like not. But maybe that's why we just have to go to the work sure. and, then, and not look too much about the... Uh... It's difficult to do that, though. Mm, it is. I sort of like... Because um, we have a fantasy. I mean, I have a fantasy like what Jane Austen's like. And I bet she would have hated me. You know, but then it would have defended how you'd met each other and how long a time you spent in each other's company. <laughs> Eventually... I know she would have hated me because I am Lydia Bennett. I am not Elizabeth. I am not Jane. I don't like secrets and stuff like that I don't behave well I get drunk I am See, Lydia she she did not like Lydia that's she gave should... Lydia a sticky end that's why you should like the Brontes more you get oh, on with the Brontes what we got oh we've got five give five givens have come up on the screen we've got freedom responsibility and agency death human limitation and, and finiteness yeah we got that Isolation and connectedness, you are alone. Meaning and meaningless, emotions, experience and embodiment. See, I... See, oh. That'll do. Yeah, that'll do. Yeah, yeah. it's fine. Yeah. We should get on to your first book, because <laughs> apart from your own book, obviously, Fiction, <laughs> we will mention how to stay sane. Um, but you, you said, I have a musty volume here. I have a musty volume here. It is the... Uh, the minor works of Jane Austen, <laughs> her little unpublished pieces. And why I chose this to bring is because as you, as creative people, <laughs> you probably have this happen to you a lot, which is when someone sees your stand-up show, they go, oh, I know what you should do a joke on. And they <laughs> think they're giving you terrific material, but actually you're not interested in it. It's their material, not yours. And it just shows oh, my God, you didn't get me, did you? And it's really sort of depressing. And um, I'm married to an artist, and people are always telling him what to make art about. And it's sort of like, that's just not how it works. And See, I didn't realise artists got that as well. I knew that kind of... I didn't realise that artists, you know... You want to paint You yeah. want to paint a picture of some fruit, mate. Yeah, yeah. 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 if I do that gate, still live... If yeah. it was a gate, it surely would. It really <laughs> nice if you had a robin on it or something. <laughs> So here we have um, page uh, 428, if I can find it in, the, in here. Um, uh, have you ever done um, three white horses in the home? Because that looks really lovely. Here we, we go. One of those. Um, yeah, she got, Jane got, uh, on first name terms with her, even though she wouldn't like that. But Jane got a lot of advice from friends, from relations, from members of the public about what her next book should be and um you know she did imperfect heroes and heroines and that annoyed a lot of her public and um yeah so they said uh, this is this was the amalgamation this particular chapter of all the suggestions she'd ever been given of what huh. she should write seemed to be in the country heroine, the daughter of a clergyman, one who, after having lived much in the world, had retired from it and settled in a curacy with very small fortune of his own. He, the most excellent man that can be imagined, perfect in character, temper and manners, without the smallest drawback or peculiarity to prevent his being the most delightful companion to his daughter, from one at year's end to another. And his daughter is also equally perfect. But terrible <laughs> things befall them in the most sort of dramatic sort of way. So they have to go from co uh, country to country in the continent. Just the very opposite of what Jane Austen usually wrote about. She wrote about, you know, tiny little subtleties that happen in very small villages in very small families. And this was supposed to be an epic novel going across <laughs> Europe with these perfect heroes and heroines and all her novels are about the transformation of uh, the protagonist from being a bit shit to being a bit better and um, so this is like completely opposite to what she usually wrote and it must have been really annoying getting all this advice going you're doing it wrong basically yeah. it's like why aren't you making the thing I've decided I want you to do yeah because you should be yeah, I mean, obviously you're better at writing than I am. You're just not writing my mind completely. And I am a perfect heroine that terrible things happen to me. And I would like that shown in a book, please. It's that great line about if, if the audience knew what they wanted, they'd be the artist, not the audience. Mm. 
Yeah. yeah. Which I think is... Uh, but that's not a rude thing to say, no, is no. it? It's like that if you've got... If you think, oh, uh, you know what you should do? Well, maybe you should do it then instead. Yeah. And that's, well, that's a good... That's, I, that's kind what of empowering I, thing. That's what I always say. I think you... That's your book, I think, you know, when somebody tells me what to write. Well, I'm going to go and paint that gate then. <laughs> Robin comes <laughs> and sits on it. But also, it is... I mean, that is very positive and it is a true thing. It is like... If you have a, like, you know, when people are kind of like, they're a terrible comedian, my sitcom idea is better than that. It's like, well, you must write it then. Don't, you know, don't worry about it. Get on with it. You've got another book that you brought as well. Oh, yeah. Now, this is more like a genre of books that I really, really like. Uh, It's the E.F. Benson uh, Map and Lucia books. Oh, Oh, my God. They... They're, they're, they were formative for me. They're, they're written in the 20s and 30s, and I just love practically anything written between the wars, Mitford, especially in the like comic genre. So Mitford, Diary of a Provincial Lady by E.M. Delafield, E.F. Uh, e. Benson, obscure ones that you've never heard of. I just love that era, and I love the, the formality of the language, especially when it's used to comic effect. Um, I've only known of this series from there was the TV ad- adaptation of it. Uh, yeah, that? yeah, Map and Lucia, which was oh, I can't remember who was Wasn't in it. Wasn't it Prunella now. Scales, perhaps? Yes, she was Map. Scales and, and uh, Geraldine, Geraldine McEwen. McEwen oh, yeah. they, she was a wonderful Lucia. Lucia is the heroine of these books, but actually, she's a bit of a monster. She's a functioning narcissist. I mean, very subtle uh, when it comes to narcissism as compared to what we're used to these days but um she is she's she's made mayor of this town and she's absolutely obsessed about how she should um behave with dignity to get the utmost respect now should I still go shopping do you think or do you think that'd be vulgar now I'm mayor and she's just sort of like what will people think if I'm amongst them Oh, and then she compares herself to Catherine the Great, so she decides she still can go shopping, so she can keep her fingers on the pulse of what's going on. So it's it's comic, but it's tragic, because you have to laugh at someone who is so blind, and we're all surrounded by them. And if we took them seriously, we would be miserable. I mean, there's a lot of that in Jane Austen as well. I mean, look at... Mr. Woodhouse that Emma puts up with, he's absolutely awful. He's a terrible, terrible hypochondriac. It would make her life a misery if there wasn't this sort of lightness of touch about it. So I think it's quite instructive in a sort of self-help sort of way of, of um, you know, make the most of, um, you know, an appalling woman like Lucia and, and see the funny side of her. I've never seen a quote on the back of the book which is a co-signatory quote. Because normally it will say, you know, I thought this book was absolutely wonderful, Philippa Perry, or this is, you know, mm. a must-read Josie Long. It's, we will pay anything for Lucia books. Noel Coward, Gertrude Lawrence, Nancy Mitford, W.H. Auden. Huh. You see. So they're all co- they're co-signatories of that one particular... It's, it's that almost t- like a petition. You've yeah. got to read <laughs> E.F. Benson, especially <laughs> if you hanker after i mean it is that sort of subtleties of everyday life rather than big big drama oh, about h- how we all get on together and it's it's just it's got such a humorous slant to it i mean oh god i mean just how it opens and it just carries on the same way Lucia Pilson, the mayor-elect of Tilling, and her husband Georgie were talking together one October afternoon in the garden room at Mallard's. The debate demanded the exercise of their keenest faculties, viz. Should Lucia, when next month she entered on the supreme municipal office, continue to go down to the high street every morning after breakfast with her market basket and make her personal purchases at the shops of the baker, the grocer, the butcher and wherever else the needs of the day. You know, it's sort of like, it's funny. I think it's funny anyway. No, because have you read the ghost? I've never read the ghost stories either. Yes. Because I know Mark Gatiss is just... Edited a collection. I, oh, of, really? Uh, I've read. I when I got a bee in my bonnet about E. F. Benson, I joined the British Library just so I could read all the out of print E. F. Benson books. So yes, I have. That was before the internet. We had to find our own amusement. <laughs> and are they what kind? Are they are they kind of M. Oh, they Jamesish or are they? Oh, they're gentler, pretty bad. Or? You can see he had quite a long apprenticeship. They're pretty clumsy and badly written, 
uh, and careless and and badly edited, whereas the EF the the Map and Lucia EF Bensons are highly polished in comparison. But there are some gems um, where he was getting a bit better. There's Mrs Amos, which I recommend. That's a sort of forerunner for Map and Lucia. Uh, Mrs Amos is not quite monstrous enough she's sort of clever and quite nice and manages things like her husband's affair quite well um so i recommend that uh the blotting book is a sort of murder mystery thing and you know you can tell the blotting book i bet it was from a blot of a signature that we find <laughs> out who did it. you know you can sort of tell what's going to happen from the title um the same sort of characters that you get in Map and Lucia occur again and again in all the uh, unreprinted novels. And they get a little bit like, oh, God, not this again. But by the time he gets to writing Map and Lucia, he's just got them down. So is that the end then? Were they kind of the final works? or They, they were his... Uh, I don't know if they were the end. I don't know what order he wrote stuff in. But um, that he had found his stride when he wrote those, for sure. It's a relief, isn't it, though, as well? Because some, quite, sometimes you read certain authors and you imagine that they they appeared fully sure. formed. Absolutely. Yeah. And to actually go, oh, it took a lot yeah, of a lot. perhaps slightly snotty reviews from the Times of London for them to go, this is still not quite working. I've revealed too much of the title as well. Everyone knows about the blinking blotting thing. But also it's that thing of it's reassuring because you just go, just keep going. Just keep going no matter what. Just write more. And it's fine. If you enjoy it, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> don't. Stop, for God's sake. <laughs> no, you don't enjoy it. No one else enjoys it. Keep going forever. Uh, yeah. The, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's the problem, isn't it, with the fact that when you become a writer and then actually it has to be seen by other people. Mm. So you can enjoy writing when you're imagining that one day you'll be a writer. And then you become a writer and realise that other, that means other people, for any way to make money from it, other people have to read it and dismiss it. It's absolutely horrible because I really enjoyed writing couch fiction. I, I really loved it because I hadn't got a publisher. I was having a great time. And then, of course, I didn't even think about, oh, I suppose I better get it published. I just I just got it published. I didn't get it published. It took me like three years to find a publisher. But, you know, I tried to get a publisher and I got one. And I thought, yeah. And then just before publication day, I felt terribly exposed. I thought, what am I doing? I don't want anyone to read this. This is embarrassing. What if people say it's shit? Because, um, or what if people say, no, Philippa, that's not how psychotherapy is practiced. That was just how I practiced it. But luckily they didn't, and that was quite nice. And then the second book I wrote, it was a commission, and it was horrible. That's it, How to Stay Sane, which was yeah, it School was, of Life. It was book. a horrible book to write. I mean, I, I'm proud of it now, and I like the book now, but the actual process of writing it was like, oh, it was like being constipated. And why is that? Why do you... I don't know. I think it's because I had this thing of somebody was looking over my shoulder and was go and, and I had a deadline and I had to write it. It wasn't a choice because I'd signed a contract to write yeah. the book. And so um, I didn't seem to be able to get into the mindset that I'd chosen to write it. Because you're not in your free creative... Yeah, and there were sort of certain parameters like a word count or something that I had to stick to. And it's sort of like... Ugh! And so you'd think after that experience, I'd be sensible enough not to accept any more commissions to write books. You'd think. What's the no, next one then that's uh, <laughs> currently constipated in you? It's an obstacle course, the next one, because every time I think, oh, I've cracked it now, I, I, I just come across another obstacle and I don't know if I'm going to be able to manage it. But I have got a title now. It's going to be called It's Not Fair. Ha. If I ever get to finish it. And it is basically a parenting manual. That sounds great. Yeah, great. <laughs> well, as long as you get it, because it's interesting, that when you're talking about history, I, mean, I remember reading a book by Desmond Morris where he talks about the change. In he said, for instance, when I was, like, when he was one year old or whatever, he had something like pneumonia. And yeah. uh, in those days, apparently, the advice was leave the pram outside. Oh, God. Let him get lots of lovely cold air. So, it's said, a, so I nearly it's, died then. It's a, it's a very good idea because if the baby's weak, it will die if you leave the pram outside in the in the in the tradition of Sparta. And so then uh, it's the survival of the fittest. So that's basically what it was. It was Sparta in a starched apron at that point. <laughs> it was. It was. Yeah. And I I'm thinking that like when you back to what you're saying about deadlines and stuff like there's a thing about creativity which is that because it is so like not about work or a 
about projects, it is like counter to that and like it's supposed to be wonderful. playing. Yeah. yeah, and so like I find I. I'm trying to come up with an idea for something or trying to develop an idea for something at the moment that I'm really enjoying. But as soon as I say to myself, right, I have to do this because I need to give this by, to this person by this deadline or whatever, then my brain rebels so much that I found myself doing my taxes because I was like, no, forget that. I'm going to do my taxes instead. It like must my be brain, bad, yeah. yeah my brain yeah. was like, I would rather do this thing that I hate than do the thing that I would love because... It's so what work. is that? That's an because I find that, which is I'm writing something at the moment, and I think, why aren't you just doing it all the time? Because when I actually finally get down to it, and I suddenly do a couple of thousand words, I'm having a lot of fun, yeah. and then the next day it starts all over again, and you realise that if you don't spend ages on it, it won't be any good. So is that, when people do that thing where you, you keep distract yourself from actually the thing that you should truly love, is that partly down to working out different ways of uh, you've got an alibi for why? Oh, well, I didn't put enough. I mean, is that can that be? Well, I'm just wondering about like with, with your process when you're saying you wrote couch fiction and you go, I'm really pleased with that and you're really proud of it and you and you think that's a good piece of work. And then the moment it's going to be published, you go, oh, it's probably shit. So yeah. the moment the other eyes come in. No, I, I did think it would be probably shit because I thought, yeah, that's a really good depiction of how I work as a psychotherapist. But I suddenly had a panic that other people would work differently. And they do to some extent, but it was enough like they work that they didn't condemn it out of hand. I was worried about what my peers would think about right. it more than anything. That was like really scary. I thought I might be drummed out of town, ostracised, never talked to again. <laughs> but that thing you were talking about of... If you've got a choice and you choose to do something, it's a lot easier than if you've got the deadline contract thing and you haven't got a thing. I mean, you know, if you want a child to clean her teeth, you go, do you want to use the pink toothbrush or the red toothbrush? You don't say to them, you've got to clean your teeth. You sort of offer it as a sort of choice. Just a little sly manipulation I'm giving you there. But it's much easier when you think, oh, shall I use the red one or the pink one? You know, you've got a lovely choice. It sort of feels like you're not hemmed in a corner. But if you've got to clean your teeth, it's like a horrible, horrible thing. Like, no. Oh, I show my son my mouth. <laughs> my God, does he clean his teeth. Well, you're giving him a choice. That lies in. <laughs> you're giving him a choice. You can have, have black teeth like me. Give us a smile. Oh, yeah, right. Okay. It's worse than that. It's metal. Oh, yeah. is it? It's sort of metal. Yeah, yeah, no, the, yeah. No, what you're seeing there is actually metal. It's not that on the colour of my teeth. Oh, right, okay. I just thought, great, great. <laughs> yeah, so you are giving him a choice. You're going to go full metal jacket teeth or little white pearly teeth. You choose. So... He's sometimes the choice is too annoying and shit between both options because I remember really, really clearly the film Dangerous Minds came out when I was 11. And, is um, that the one with Michelle Pfeiffer? Yes. Thing? Yeah, right. And in it she says to the kids, she's like, you have a choice. You basic, And the choice is basically like... Me or your dad? <laughs> it's like, come to school and do all this shit or have a shit time outside of school. And I remember being like... Yeah, but that choice is shit. Neither of those options are any good. It's not a real choice if both options are shit. Yeah, yeah. the fictional teachers say weird. I've all, I've never lost that moment of seeing. I've never seen the whole of Mr. Holland's opus, but there's a, you know he's the music teacher that everyone loves at the end, Richard Dreyfuss. I remember it. I and there's it a cello player who and he thinks, how can I teach her to play the cello beautifully? I know. I'll just say this: play the sunshine. <laughs> it doesn't work like that. It's like it's like people imagining going. Yeah. Turns out, if you go and see Philip right for years, absolute waste of time. Just say, just pop round. Can you touch me elbow? <laughs> Thank you very much. And then you're done. It's all sorted. Yeah. It's all sorted. Yeah, lovely. Do you read anywhere near the end? But I just wondered about. Do you read? Uh, you, you've mentioned uh, a couple of, of, of authors. Do you still read books about psychotherapy? Do you still enjoy well, them, or I, do you see them as revision? Uh, I don't read sort of lay people's books about psychotherapy so but I will read um, something like relational psychoanalysis published by the APA because I just love theory and ideas but they're they're impenetrable unless it's, it's just you know they people clever people like to write in their own language just to show how clever they are so they they made them deliberately obtuse and difficult to read, but I still really, really love them. Um, and then what else do I read? I mean, I'm reading at the moment something called The Anthropology of Childhood 
cherubs something and changelings actually i've got it on the phone oh, we knew this no, I haven't. i've turned my phone off there we go do you know what if they put in david say... lancy whatever he's called uh, something and like what's that. The, what's the? Uh, it's the, it's an anthropology of childhood worldwide. So um, it's a study of how pregnancy, babies, children are regarded by all the different cultures. And it's by Cambridge University Press. I have remembered that. <laughs> so again, I mean, I don't think it's 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 written for other anthropologists. Really, I think. I don't think it's meant as a childcare manual. <laughs> Do you find yourself when you're reading now all of the skills that you've learned, like when you sit, you know, in the same way that when you're sitting on a bus and you compare, do you find yourself perhaps thinking, I think I may well be seeing too much in this character now and in some ways therefore I've just found out more about the author than I wanted to and the fact <gasps> they created that character that? I thought it, it must be a, a bit no, of a destruction No, that's never happened Does it not? Ah. No? <laughs> Genuinely, you never have a moment where you think No, I, I sort of, uh, you know enter the world of the author rather than you take a day I, off and enjoy it Yeah, I mean, I never once analysed uh, Hilary Mantel when I read Wolf Hall I just, you know Lived with Cromwell and Henry VIII for a bit. But you've never had a moment of a character where you thought, someone who can create this character, I think I'd better give them a call. No. Go and touch their elbow. No. Right. Never, ever thought that. Maybe I should have done, but I never have. No, it sounds like relief because sometimes we have people on who have specialised in an area and then found by doing that specialisation that there are other things that have now been removed from their joy because they they see something in a, in a different way and they think, I know I shouldn't, but I'm now reading into this something that's come I from I mean, my... what I find is I can't enjoy things that are for lay people about my subject because they're obviously, so everybody gets it, a bit simple. I mean... Everybody must find, you know, if you're a musician, you probably don't want to watch a documentary about music because it has to be at a level for the general public to understand and you're a specialist. Mm. So there is that. So it's that's spoilt for me. Or it just gets a bit boring. Like if I see a comedy show about a comedian, I'm like, could you not just think of any idea? Could you not think <laughs> of going to the zoo? Why does it have to be about a comedian? Yeah. You know. Well, I think it gets us back to that girl man amnesia thing, doesn't it? Oh, here we go. The Anthropology of Childhood Cherubs, Chattel, Changelings. That's what I'm reading at the moment by I knew David Lancey. Eventually, yeah, it did. Yeah. <laughs> um, thank you very much for joining us. It's a pleasure. The uh, How to Stay Sane and uh, Couch Fiction are uh, the two books. I've read both of them, and in fact, How to Stay Sane I've been rereading quite a lot because I'm writing a book about. Uh, weird you know the stupid things comedians do and how they're just normal human things and just we're all not very well it's just a defense mechanism really isn't it comedy gallows humor i don't know if it's defense i I think it's a way of remolding the world so that you can survive that question (laughs) yes i am my mother Thank you very much. So these are the people, the Patreon people. Oh, you can start it this Thank time. Thank you. It makes it easier if you start. Um, William Atwell, Tom Hampshire, Carly Edmonton, Ed- Edmonton, yeah, Sally Grant, Norman McCaskill. And as well as Norman McCaskill, it was also uh, Ellen Leon, Christopher Bedford, Philip, Bur- uh, Philip Burrow, sorry, uh, Ellie Hothers Hall, and the Box of Books winner is Stephen Pusey. And there's probably going to be another Box of Books winner as well, uh, and we'll work somewhere out because there was... Uh, I'll tell you what, why don't we just... If, if Sally Grant lives in uh, the UK, she's one as well. Hooray! I've got so many books and... Uh, I was going to bring some to give away. ridiculous. Oh, no, God, I've got I to get rid of mine. <laughs> no, I don't need anyone else to bring any. I've just got stacks and stacks <laughs> and stacks of the things. It's I a nightmare. And it's, uh, in fact, there's a very good on on, on uh, four extra. Uh, there's uh, a, a documentary called Too Many Books, uh, originally from 2011, and it's uh, I think it's Sarah Cruddock, I think, is the person who presents it, and it's her talking to different people, going, "Well, I, I can't get rid of that book. I, no, 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 that one can go to the charity shop. No, you can only borrow that Bruce Chatwin." And it's <laughs> it's that that parting with books, the agony of parting with books. Oh, it's the worst. I once uh, took all my books to Oxfam, and then the next day I had to go and buy them all back because. Too much. Yeah, I do that as well. When I go, well, how did I know I was going to do a documentary on that? Need that again. But perhaps the gift aid helps. I don't know. I was thinking about getting rid of books, but write, writing in a book all the books I was giving away. 
So, that so you've got them physically... somewhere. Yeah. Is that crazy? I or... quite like the fact that I, I've got so many books now and I'm not very well organised. So I lose them all in the house. And uh, so then if I can't find a book I know I bought, I just get it on Kindle. Then I can oh. always find it because I don't lose my phone. Yeah, because you've downloaded and then you've got By the got way, the the, it's finished, but we're just going to keep talking. So oh, right. Okay. Well, well, you still do have to stop no, talking. No, it's great. I can start interrupting now because I was really careful not to interrupt before. Oh, oh we shouldn't have done that. Yeah, you're allowed to interrupt. It's your show. Um, we talk no. too much. Thanks very much for listening. And if you were one of the winners of the box of books this week, you can get in touch with us via email at contact at cosmicshambles.com. And if you'd like to become a supporter of the show, you can do that via Patreon at patreon.com slash bookshambles, or you can make a one-off donation via PayPal. If you go to cosmicshambles.com, there'll be the PayPal link there on the homepage. And that is the end of this season of Book Shambles. We'll be back with a new season in late April, early May, because we are out on tour at the moment. With Cosmic Shambles Live, Robin, Josie, Helen Chersky, Matt Parker, Lucy Green, uh, Dr. Carl, Katie Mack, uh, Nobel Laureate Peter Doherty, Michelle Dickinson, Susie Wiles, lots of amazing people. And if you're listening to this episode on release day, our first show is in Sydney next week on the 28th. And then we'll be going to Melbourne, Auckland, Wellington, Christchurch and Perth. So if you're in Australia and New Zealand, make sure you go to cosmicshambleslive.com and you can get tickets for those shows. Or alternatively, you've still got time to jump on a plane and fly out to Australia or New Zealand for one of the shows. We'd love to have you there. So while we're on a book shambles break, make sure you go to cosmicshambles.com to check out lots of the other stuff on the Cosmic Shambles network that maybe you haven't had time to catch up with. There's obviously all the past book shambles episodes and the reading lists for those there. Lots of other podcasts, including the Speakeasy podcast hosted by Bruce Hood, Music Shambles with Robin and Michael Legg. There's the Professor Brian Cox Question and Answer podcast. There's a web series up there, the Quest for Wonder Puppet series with Robin and Brian. There's the Chaos of Delight web series. Lots of great guests on that, including Josie and Chris Addison, Ben Miller, Helen Chersky, Ben Goldacre. Check that out. Uh, There's lots of articles, new articles on the site from all sorts of people. Some documentaries on there to check out as well, including The Empty Niche, uh, directed by myself, presented by Ginny Smith. So lots of stuff on there to keep you entertained until we are back with the new season of Book Shambles in a month or so, which we'll be recording out in Australia and New Zealand with lots of great guests out there. So thanks again for listening, and we will be back soon. This podcast is part of the Cosmic Shambles Network. Josie Robbins' book Shambles was produced by Trent Burton of Trunkman Productions.